0: Welcome to the Compass Church Podcast with Pastor Tim Jacobs, a ministry of Compass Church, New York, Arizona. Join us now as we look into God's word to be challenged and changed. Well, if you uh, are wondering what on earth is going on here, and you're like, what is that? Do I always sing and put on a cardigan? No, we don't. Uh, This whole series, I'm Gabe, I'm I'm, uh, one of the executive pastors here, and we're doing this sermon series called, Won't You Be My Neighbor? And the whole thing is, is a reference to, uh, to this guy, Mr. Rogers. And if you don't know who that is, you're probably pretty young. But uh, he had a television show for about 33 years that ran, and it was a children's show. And there just came out a, a documentary on him, and it was really good. It was entitled, Won't You Be My Neighbor? And this whole sermon series, the title, everything, kind of goes back to this question, won't you be my neighbor? It's, it's, that's what we're really trying to get at. And here's what Mr. Rogers said about uh, that line. He said, uh, won't you be my neighbor is an invitation. It's an invitation to help somebody to know that they are loved and capable of loving. Love is at the root of everything, love or the lack of it. Who would you be willing to extend such an invitation to? Or more importantly, who would you not be willing to extend such an invitation to? You know, we don't always get to pick our neighbors. In fact, some, some of you may have uttered the words or had the thought as you, you peeked out the blinds and saw who was getting out of the moving van. There goes the neighborhood. We don't get to pick our neighbors, but we do get to the choice of whether or not we're going to be neighborly or not. And what does it take to be a good neighbor? What makes a good neighbor? A good neighbor shows genuine, godly love and kindness. It's this idea of hospitality. You actually have to care about their well being. If your neighbor's house was on fire, like you stepped out your front door at, at night and you see this like flames engulfing this house and it's hot and you could feel the heat from where you're at across the street and you look over there and you see your neighbor and he's like sweating, he's got this panicked expression and he's got a solo cup in his hand and he's like, he's running over the hose bib and filling it up one cup at a time and he's trying to put the fire out. No, oh, it's a little better. He goes back, it gets a little more because he doesn't know any better. What would you do would you help him? A good neighbor would get him the help he needs. He, he'd get him to call who he needs to call. Today, we're gonna look at a, the story of Jonah. So if you have your Bibles, you can flip there. We're gonna be going through the whole story. It's about a, a little past midway. And as you're turning there, I, I decided that uh, since you know we're going with this Mr. Rogers theme and it's a children's uh, show, I would bring back a very sophisticated piece of technology from 1960. It's called the flannel graph. That's right, some of you know what the flannel graph is. Now the flannel graph was something that was used in churches from like 1960 all the way up. Maybe your church still uses them, we don't know. But uh, look out PowerPoint. So basically I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of throw up the characters here and you can see kind of the story as, as we tell it. Um, in this particular flannel graph, It's copyrighted in 1968, which is when the first show of Mr. Rogers aired. So it's kind of a nice, neat little tie-in there. So if you got your Bibles, flip to Jonah. We're We're gonna tell the story in three acts. The first act, I call God Calls Jonah to Arise and Go. We're gonna start in chapter one, verse one. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, saying, arise. We're going to see this word a lot, arise. In fact, uh, would you be willing to do something with me? Would you? You can answer. Yeah. Okay. Some of you will. We'll try it. Every time we say the word arise, every time I read it or say it or arose or any of those, I want you to say, get up. Okay. Arise. Pretty good. We'll see if this becomes a train wreck or not. But the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. Jonah doesn't seek it. He's not looking for it. In fact, he's lying down. God says, Jonah, arise and go. Go where? To Nineveh. Now let me tell you a little bit about Nineveh. During this time, like 100 years prior to this story, and really for, for a long time after this story, the major world power in their area was Assyria. And the capital of Assyria was Nineveh. And the Assyrians had, had launched this campaign, 100 years prior to this story, right into their territory, into the, the heart of Israel, at a very savage and brutal campaign. And when I say savage, I don't mean like savage like the way they use it now, like, dude, she said hi, you didn't say hi back, savage. I don't mean that. I mean like legendary brutality. Things that were unparalleled throughout history. They would take their enemies and and they would put them on stakes in front of their towns. They would cut off their heads and hang them from, from the trees in the garden of the king. They were masters of torture. They would take men, women, and children captive and they would disfigure them, hacking off their nose, their ears, their fingers, gouging out their eyes, tearing off their lips or their hands. They covered their city walls with the flesh of their enemies unparalleled violence and brutality throughout history. If anybody rebelled, any of their subjects rebelled, they would massacre them by the hundreds. They would burn them at the stake and then they'd take their skulls and they'd set them in piles on the the town roads as a warning. Now at the time of God's word coming to Jonah and telling him to get up and go, they were actually, they were the world power, but they were on the decline. It was, it was the moment of their weakened state. In fact, Jonah got to prophesy. He had the, he had the, the benefit and the pleasure of prophesying to the king. God told him, hey, they're, they're weakened now. And so Jonah prophesied that they're going to be weakened. They're going, they're going to be struggling. They're going to be disintegrating. And we can, have a, we can expect a relative time of peace and safety. In fact, we can extend our borders now. Jonah and all of Israel would've been glad to see them on this decline, disintegrating. And it's right here at this point, as they're starting to decline, that God tells Jonah to arise to and go to Nineveh. That was pretty good. We'll keep going. So go to Nineveh. So Jonah gets up and he goes, not to Nineveh, <laughs> right? It says he flees from the presence of the Lord. Flees from the presence of the Lord, and he heads to this place called Tarshish. I don't have a lisp. That's how it's pronounced. <laughs> he flees from. The, I don't know how. Jonah's a prophet. He's a spokesman for God. He knows God. Like, he knows you, the earth is God's. Everything belongs to him. How can you flee from the presence of the Lord? You you can't. Like he's he's everywhere. I don't know what he's expecting, what he thinks or why he thinks he can do that. He's kind of like my three-year-old son when he gets in trouble, does this thing. That's what he's doing. I'm gonna flee from the presence of the Lord. He goes down to a place called Joppa, and he finds a ship, and he pays them to take him to Tarshish. There's the ship. That's the 1968 version. It's probably bigger than this one, but we'll go with it, because it says he goes down into the boat, so it's probably a bigger ship than this. This one in particular is, uh, the first mate is Aladdin, so that's good. Uh, So he goes down into the ship, and the ship takes off. He tries to flee from the presence of the Lord, but the Lord hurls a great wind at him. Here's my great wind, and the seas stir up, and they threaten that the ship is going to break apart. And so the men, they, I love this. I love the word, but right, right in there, right? Like, like Jonah's got this whole scheme. I'm going to flee from the presence of the Lord. He's got, I, ima- I imagine like Hannibal Lecter at the end of Silence of the Lambs. He's got his like Tommy Bahama shirt on and the glasses and he thinks he's going to like escape. But God hurls this great wind. God interrupts, he acts. He throws this violent storm. It's about to break apart. It says in verse five, the mariners were afraid, each cried out to his God, little G, God. And they hurled the cargo out of the ship in hopes to lighten the load for them. This isn't a a tiny storm. These are professional, seasoned sailors and they are terrified. They think it's like supernatural. They're, 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 They're like, this is like nothing we ever, we're gonna cry out to whatever gods we know. Whatever we can think of, they're crying out to these little G gods, and they're taking the things that they're transporting, their very livelihood, just to try to survive today. They're, they're hurling it out of the ship. And it's interesting. They're, god's hurling wind at them, they're hurling cargo out, this like competition of wills, and guess who's winning? Not them. God's winning. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and he had lain down and was fast asleep. Jonah's sleeping. He went down to the belly of the boat. You know, he's in there with the cargo. It's nice and dark. He's being kind of rocked. He falls asleep, and he doesn't even wake up to the hell that they're facing on the deck. Doesn't even notice it. He's out. He's taking a nap. And the captain comes down to the bottom of the ship and he finds Jonah. Probably comes down to see what else we can hurl off the ship. And he comes down and he finds Jonah sleeping. And he says, hey you, you sleeper. What do you mean you sleeper? I love that. What do you mean you sleeper? You're sleeping? We're like fighting for our lives. a storm of the century out there. He says, arise. Call out to your little G God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. See, he didn't know who Jonah was he, or his nationality or anything. He had, Jonah had kind of done this escape plan, this shady deal and kind of concealed. I don't know if he's wearing a disguise or whatever. And they're up there doing everything they possibly can, everything they can think of to be saved. In verse seven, it says, and they said to one another, okay, we're, we're trying all this. Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and it fell on Jonah. Casting lots is, is what they would do in the ancient times when like, the answer wasn't clear. They've, they've, they've tried every other option, and so maybe, maybe we can roll the dice and see who's the problem here. Maybe, maybe someone will speak through that. It's like flipping a coin you know. every time it's landing heads on Jonah. They're, they're shaking the eight ball. Okay, whose problem is this? Jonah. Okay, whose problem is this really? Really, Jonah. And it's Jonah every time. And so they say, you know, what, what's the deal with you? What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And Jonah answers, says, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid, and they said to him, what is this that you have done for the men knew that he was fleeing from, tar, uh, from the presence of the Lord. There's a couple things I want to point out here. Firstly, look at how Jonah identifies himself and what he knows about God. Like he's no stranger to God. He knows God's in control of all things. He's, he's over the, the land and the sea, the heavens and the earth. And Jonah, so he's, he's not ambiguous to who God is, but he also identifies himself as someone who fears the Lord. He fears the Lord, and yet he disobeys and he flees. What would make him do that? Why? Secondly, I want you to notice the word exceedingly. It's used a lot throughout the story. It has present and future implications. It's not just something that happens, but something that's growing or is beginning to grow. The sailors are afraid when they hear about who Jonah is and who his God is. Not just afraid, their fear doesn't just exist, but it's growing as the situation goes on. Why? Because they've heard of this God. In fact, they were able to put t- two and two together. Once they figure out that he's a Hebrew and that he believes in God, they're like, wait a second. We're going to Tarshish. You bought, you kind of like sneakily got this fair onto here. You're running from the presence of the Lord. And they, they said, in what what is this you've done? What, what should we do? Their, their, their fears grow because they know this guy's running from like a real God. And they said to him, what shall we do with you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more temptuous. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. I know it's because of me. See, Jonah has known the whole time what's going on, and yet he's let it play out exactly like this. He knew from the moment the captain woke him up, and yet he never speaks up or offers any help. He's passive the whole time. He's passive even in his solution. He's passive. He's, the word hurl that's been used a lot in here. You know, God's hurling the wind. The sailors are hurling the cargo. And now he's asking the sailors to hurl him. The word hurl means it implies intention and effort. And Jonah's not going to give any of that. Hurl me into the sea. He doesn't offer to be any part of the solution. Jonah is responsible for what is threatening their lives, and yet he puts them in this difficult place. He basically says, Look, you can drown which is fine by me, or you can get my blood on your hands. That's the position he's put them in. And verse 13 says, Nevertheless, the men rowed as hard as they could to get back to dry land, but they could not. Nevertheless, and the sea's growing more and more temptuous. Nevertheless, even though Jonah had given them the solution, and was the problem, they still row as hard as they can to save his life. Crazy. Like, I don't know about you, but this is like, okay, so you're telling me this whole storm is your fault, and the way to stop it is to get rid of you. Yeah, bye, you know, like. But nevertheless, they're rowing as hard as they can. The, story want, the storyteller wants you to know that these guys are doing everything they can. How do you feel about the sailors? And how do you feel about Jonah? Very interesting how he's painting these two different, uh, these characters. Therefore they called out to God. They, th- there was no hope. So who do they call out to? They don't call out to the little g-gods anymore. They pray to the Lord. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. You. So they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. (whistles) (whistles) Heave, plop, silence. It's quiet. And they respond the only way that you can respond to encountering God and being saved. And the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And what happens to Jonah? Well, it says, and then as Jonah hits the water, a great fish comes up and swallows him. And Jonah is in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And while he's in there, he prays. and It's a very interesting poetic prayer. He prays this prayer where he realizes that he was gonna die. In fact, he probably knew that when he asked them to hurl him into the sea. He uses this imagery saying like I was, I was in the grave and I was being covered up and I saw life fainting away from me. But I called out to you God and you reached down your hand and you pulled me out of the pit. And he says this line where he says, uh, those who pay regard to vain idols, to pray to little g-gods, they forsake, they don't know their hope of steadfast love. And then he says, but with a voice of thanksgiving will I sacrifice to you and what I have vowed I will pay because salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah's known this. He's experienced it. You see, Jonah fully expected to die, being hurled over, but now in his prayer, when he's asked to be saved and he gets saved, he responds with gratitude. He responds the only way you can respond when in- encountering God and being saved. He's thankful. He offers a sacrifice. He makes a vow, just like the sailors did. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and the fish vomited Jonah up onto dry land. Blech there you go. I wish that the English translator would have used the word hurled instead of vomited just to keep consistent language. But what can you do? That's how act one ends. Act two, I call it, God calls Jonah to arise and go again. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city and call out against it the message that I tell you this message that God has seen their violence and that he is going to deal with them. Take two, right? Jonah gets up and he goes. And this time he does go because he doesn't want to go through that again. So Jonah arose. Try that again. Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. It was three days journey in its breadth So Jonah goes to the city, and you can imagine as he's walking up to the city, he sees the impaled bodies, maybe Israelites that he had known. He sees the piles of skulls. He sees the wall of flesh, and he remembers their brutality. He remembers the wrong that they've done. You can also imagine that they see him walking up to the city. What does a man look like? after he's been in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights. He's probably pale and hairless from being in stomach acids. He probably smells like a guy who's been in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights. It's not like he had a change of clothes, they didn't throw his luggage into the fish too. He's wearing those clothes and he's approaching the city and Jonah began to go in the city, going only one day's journey. He called out, Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be destroyed. It shall be overthrown. Here's him preaching the message. Not a very compelling message, but it's what God told them. It's probably the bare minimum. Doesn't give them any hope or anything, just says, You're going down. And look at how they respond. And the people of Nineveh believed God. I think that's interesting. It doesn't say they believed Jonah. They believed, big G, God. And they called for a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The storyteller wants you to know that he barely makes it a third of the way through the city and everyone's responding from the greatest to the least of them. Verse six of chapter three, it says, the word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose. He arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and ashes. He goes amongst the people and he he covers himself and mourns his own sin. And then he makes this decree, this interesting thing that, that all of them are going to do. He says, by the decree of the king and the nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. For who knows, perhaps, maybe, God may turn and relent from his fierce anger, and we might not perish. The king responds, everybody, we're going to, we realize the wrong of what we've done. We're going to make a sacrifice. We're going to mourn our sins. We're going to cover ourselves with ashes. We're going to We're going to be broken over what we've done. And then my favorite part, like, we're going to do that. In fact, let's dress up the cows. Let's dress up the cows in sackcloth and ashes, and let's make them fast. For who knows? Maybe. Maybe God will will save us. And they do it. And here's what God does. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. God saves them. How does Jonah respond to this? But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. This welling up, like irritation, anger, it says, and he was angry. And he says an angry prayer. He says, oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my own country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. He's very dramatic. But this is the big reveal. The storyteller omits Jonah's motivation and reasoning for doing everything that he's been doing, the way that he's been doing it all the way up until this point where it comes to a head. When they receive redemption, he says, "I knew it." The reason why Jonah ran, the reason why Jonah doesn't say anything on the boat, the re- is cuz he knew that God would save them. And that's exactly what he didn't want to happen. He ran because of his hatred for them, had grown so much that he'd rather lose his job, live away from everybody he had ever known, live as an exile, risk the lives of other strangers, risk his own life, than to see them come to know God and be saved. Therefore now, O Lord, take my life, and now that it's happened, he'd rather be dead, and the Lord says, do you do well to be angry? He gives him this question. And Jonah doesn't even answer it. He just walks off. Pfft, whatever. It ends, act two ends with this question. Do you do well to be angry? And he just walks off. Before we jump into act three, I want to take a brief intermission to point out something about act one and act two. There's this cycle of events There's there's a similarity of things happening, right? God's word comes and God's initiating all the action. He's making things happen all the way up to this climax of divine mercy and grace. And then Jonah prays. That happens in act one, that happens in act two. But the difference is in the prayer. Jonah in act one is grateful and thankful that God has saved him. He says salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah in act two, when he sees salvation for those in Nineveh, anger and wishing for death. The storyteller wants you to see that contrast in the story. And act three opens up with Jonah leaving the city. It says he goes up on a hill and he makes for himself a booth or one of those pergolas from uh, Costco. (laughs) And he goes up on the hill and it says he's waiting to see what the Lord might do. Like he's sitting there and he's like, maybe, just maybe, he'll still blow the place up. And he's sitting up there like the, like the Grinch who stole Christmas on Mount Crumpet. Like, oh, I'll see all those Whovilles come out and they'll cry boo hoo. And he's sitting up there and he's waiting. He's waiting and waiting and waiting. And while he's waiting, it's hot outside. It says God appoints a plant to grow up and cover his head. And it says Jonah became exceedingly glad for the plant because it brought him comfort. And then during the night, probably while he's asleep, it says God appoints a worm. I don't have a flannel graph worm, so I'll do like the little Sesame Street one. And it attacks the plant and the plant withers. And the sun rises the dawn comes, and God appoints a scorching wind. Notice that God's appointing all, God's in control of every factor of the story. He's appointing things, he's making things happen. He appoints a scorching wind, and the sun starts beating on his head. I imagine he's sitting there sleeping, and he's like progressively feeling warmth on his bald head, and all of a sudden he smells, somebody's cooking something. Smells like Fish vomit. <laughs> it smells like my flesh. Rah! You know, and he's like flailing his arms, trying to get out of the heat. And he's just so angry. He's and he asked God again, ah, why don't you take my life? Take it from me. And he asked that he might die. And he said, it's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons that don't even know their right from their left? Look, Jonah, you're angry over a plant being destroyed, a plant you didn't create nor did you even like help it grow. You have pity on this plant, but not on a people whom I have made, created, I know, and I love deeply. These people don't even know their right from their left. This is a concept all throughout the story. They don't even know their right from their left. There's there's the captain, right? And he says, pray to your little G gods, do whatever you can. Perhaps, who knows? God might save us. They don't know. They don't know what to do. They don't know who to cry out to. The, the, the king of Nineveh, he's, he's like, dress up the cows. Make them fast. Who knows? We don't know. They don't know what to do. Maybe God will save us. It's like God even throws that little punchline there in at the, the end of the story. He says, and should I not pity Nineveh, that great city with more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right from their left, and also so much cattle? But it ends on this question, this question. We don't know if Jonah figures out the, the lesson that God is teaching him. We don't, we don't know if he gets it. And the lesson that Jonah is being taught and subsequently all of Israel moving forward is that salvation belongs to the Lord. And grace is on the move outside the borders of their holy cities. Salvation belongs to the Lord and grace is moving outside the borders of their holy cities. That is why the story is told over and over again. It's an indictment. Israel was supposed to be a nation through whom which the rest of the world would know who God is. And somewhere along the way they'd gotten away from that. They just saw themselves as this nation against other nations. Somewhere along the way they lost sight of God's mission. So here's, here's the big idea. Grace is moving outside the borders of our holy cities. God's, God loves and is working about the salvation of people outside the borders of Compass Church. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he's moving things, he's appointing things, he's orchestrating things so that others will know who he is and that he desires to use this place for that purpose? God's mission for us is to be light and to bring people to a place where they could put their trust in him. We say at Compass that our goal is what? Helping people find their way to God. So here's the application. Don't be like Jonah. I'll give you three ways not to be like Jonah. The first is this, don't run from God's mission. God's mission, Jesus said he came not for the healthy but for the sick. He came to seek and save the lost. We do not exist to be some sort of Christian country club. And you get your membership and you just kind of enjoy the the perks of it all. We don't exist to be this little holy city in and of itself where we just wait out the clock and then when we all get to heaven, it'll be great. We are supposed to be on mission. So if you call Compass your home, that means you need to be on mission, not just every day in your lives, which is very much the case, but even when you show up here. Even when you show up here, you, you, you look not to be ministered to, but to minister to. And by proxy, you will be ministered to, too. We started off the year with this challenge, invest in and invite. We started off in January, we said, invest, and invite. Pick and pray about five people that don't know God, that God has placed you in their proximity, that you're going to be a light, and you're going to invest into that relationship, and you're going to invite them here, so they can learn about God. How are you doing with that? We're six months in. Where are you at with that list? Maybe it's time to revisit it and have your heart break for those whom God cares about deeply. The second uh, way to not be like Jonah, first is don't run from God's mission, the second is don't lie down and sleep. All throughout the story, Jonah is being told, arise. That was, we'll try that again. That was pretty sad. All throughout the story, Jonah is being told, arise. Go. Go. You can clearly see Jonah's hate for Nineveh, but what most people miss is his apathy for everyone else. He's passive. He says and does next to nothing while people are hurling cargo out of the ship, while they're praying to these little g-gods that won't ever save them, while they're rowing against the storm. Are you apathetic? Are you asleep while people are around you are hurling cargo out in order to save themselves by trying to lighten the load when they feel the storms of life, this meaninglessness. And they think if I could just lose weight, if I could just be richer, if I could could just look better, be younger, if I could be famous, then life would be more bearable. It wouldn't be so heavy. Do you sit at the bottom of the boat as they drink or party themselves into a stupor in order to make life less heavy? because the storms are too much? Are you silent while people pray to each their own little G gods and pursue some sort of pseudo-spiritualism, even though you know that it won't work, even though you know that there's only one God that can save them? And maybe you say something to yourself like, "Well, well, who am I to tell them? Who am I to speak up into that? You know, to each their own. Their ship is breaking apart. And there's only one God they can cry out to that, that will save them. You need to let them know that there's one God. Are you sitting there? You're like sitting there in a room full of terminally ill people with real medicine in your pocket while they're in line buying snake oil. Help them. Arise and Go. Do you watch while people row against the storms and futility, knowing that no matter how hard they try, that it will never be enough. They're sweating and they're working, and they're striving to get ahead, and you know that it won't ever satisfy. You know that it won't save them. And they row, and they row, thinking that if, if I could just do enough, if I, could, if I could just be a good enough person, if I could just have a big enough impact on the world, and all the time they're, they're drowning. See, real depression and loss come not from having lack of achievement or progress in your life. Real depression and loss come from thinking that that will bring the ultimate satisfaction and finding out that it won't. This week, two celebrities committed suicide. Do you think they needed some answers on how to calm the storms in their life? Who are you watching tire in the futility of trying to save themselves while you sit on the answer? Get up and go. And lastly, don't get angry. Don't get angry. Do you get angry when other people get saved? You're like, no, that's what a silly, silly question. But let me ask you this. Are you, are you predominantly angry at those outside of your holy city? What does your Facebook feed say about it? What what are you screaming? Are you screaming at people who don't even know they're right from their left? That God cares about deeply. Your heart should break for them. You shouldn't be angry. Your heart should you should be angry at the result of sin. You should be angry that that they don't know. But not angry at them. They don't even know they're right from their left. Are there any groups or individuals that you'd rather die than see them receive grace? And that sounds extreme. There are people that have done some pretty hateful and hurtful things. And you'd be amazed at what kind of hate you can hide in your own heart. What if the person you despise most walked through those doors, came in here? Somebody who had hurt you, wounded you? Somebody who doesn't think like you, that that has all the different views of you, but they came through those doors, they sat down, they sang the songs, and they found God. What would you do? Would you rejoice? Would you be thankful? Or would you leave the church? Don't get angry. Don't get angry at those being saved because God has a heart for those whom He loves deeply, helping people find their way to God. Yeah, but not those people. Yeah, those people. You cannot say, if, if those people come in here, then there goes the neighborhood. They're, my thing's gone. No, you got to be looking to invite them in, asking, won't you be my neighbor? Don't you know that God made those people and because God made those people, they have intrinsic worth and value just because of that. Just because God made, that's what his point was with the plant. I made the plant. I made the people. They have worth to me because they're mine. Don't you understand that every individual person God knows and loves and cares for intimately? If you walk into the room and you start to do that, it will change the way you interact with the room knowing that God knows them and cares for them and created them. When I was watching uh, the documentary about Mr. Rogers, I watched it on Friday, it was incredible. Uh, this guy was an ordained minister who saw his, his mission to, to preach a message through the medium of television. And he hated television. He thought the medium was, was broken and he thought maybe I could, I could do something that adds value and worth to people's life. And he would sing this song. He would look straight into the camera and he would sing this song about how the, the person he was singing to, he'd say, you are special just the way you are. Not by the things you do or the things you wear. Just because you are you, you are special. He said that's a very important message that people need to hear. And he said when he would sing it, he would think of one individual that needed to hear that. And then he got criticized for it. People came and they said, you're, you're setting people up for either failure or entitlement. Like kids were growing up and going, he said I was special. I don't feel so special. He lied to me. People were going, you're going to teach kids that they don't have to work hard. They're just special because they're themselves. And it's interesting in this documentary, which wasn't made by Christians, by the way, they couldn't separate this concept from where he got it. What Mr. Rogers believed was that people had intrinsic worth and value because God made them. And he thought that was an important message that people needed to hear. Don't you think everyone around you needs to know that they have value and worth just because their creator said so? Do you think that Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade could have used something like that that said, look, your life has meaning and purpose it matters, not because of what you can achieve in life, not because of what you've done or did or any of these things, but because God loves you. Maybe you're sitting in the room, and you're like, I need to hear that message. I want you to hear it. I want you to know that God loves you, not for your potential, not for what you can do, to him, do for him, because what could you do for God? He's God. He loves you because he made you and created you and maybe you're tired because you've been trying to lighten the load, doing whatever you can. Maybe you're you have been crying out to all these like pseudo-spiritualism, you're like, oh, maybe I'll try this. This hasn't worked. I don't feel good with this. Not realizing that that Jesus has an answer for you. Maybe you've been you're tired because you've been working, you've been rowing against this storm, and it hasn't satisfied yet. Do you think it will later? Stop rowing. Stop praying to little g gods. Stop trying to lighten the load and rest in grace. God loves you just the way you are and that's what the gospel believes. It believes that God loves us so much. You know, how much is a a baseball card worth? There's different amounts, it's a weird question, I know. It's worth whatever somebody's willing to pay. And God loved you so much that he was willing to pay the life of his own son. You have incredible worth and value to God, and that speaks nothing of how great we are, but everything of how great he is. And it's not about trying harder or doing more, it's realizing that and putting your faith in that. And then you you react and respond the only way you can respond after encountering God and being saved. You say, God, I'll give my life to you. I'll put my hope in that because you realize that all salvation belongs to the Lord. If you're in that place, I'm gonna pray for you specifically in just a moment that you can trust God, trust that God loves you so much that he would do such a thing and put your faith in that. Won't you be my neighbor is an invitation. It's an invitation to help somebody know that they are loved and capable of loving. Love is at the root of everything, love or the lack of it. Love is at the root of all of our actions, is what, he, what Mr. Rogers said. Love or the lack of it. For Jonah, it was the lack of it. What will it be for you? Who will you invite to be your neighbor? Let's pray. Lord, I pray uh, we come before you and we just come with grateful hearts, recognizing that you are the Lord of salvation. The only way we can, we can calm the storms, the only way we can keep the ship from falling apart, it's not in our effort, but in trusting that. So I pray for those who are sitting in the room right now, and they're tired. They've been hurling out things, trying to make it lighter. They've been been searching all sorts of avenues. I pray that you'd grip their heart right now and say, I am the one true God who knows you and loves you. Stop rowing. Rest in me. Put your hope and your faith in me. Lord, I pray that they would hear that. They would know that. They would trust that. For those of us in the room that you need, to, you need to put your finger on something in our hearts and unpin it. That we've been apathetic. That we have people around us who are drowning. People who are, who are doing everything they can to be saved but the one thing that can save them. I pray that you would give us eyes to see them as people that you made and that you desire for them to come and know who you are. I pray for those of us in here that if we're honest, There are people that we would not want to see come through those doors. I pray that you would grip our hearts, that you do whatever it takes to undo that so that we could see the world as you see it, that we can love people as you love people because, Lord, you told us that if we love you, we'll love people. So give us a heart like yours. May our hearts catch the rhythm of your heart and beat like your heart does. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for joining us today. Why not ask God to change your life so you can go and change your world for him? To find out more about our church online, go to www.cobaschurch.info and we'll see you next time.